You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Our reading is from 1 John 4, 16 to 21. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. A perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or a sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Amen. Thank you, Kesawa. Um, when I asked Kesawa to read this morning, she said, is it a good one? And then quickly corrected herself and said, oh, of course, they're all good. Um, but I, th- I think it is a good one. Thank you very much, Kesawa. Um, On Friday night, I went to see a play called Sylvia at the Old Vic. Uh, Sylvia is a kind of dramatisation and retelling of the story um, of the suffragette movement and particular focusing on Sylvia Pankhurst and her family. Um, It's great fun and very inspiring. And about a story that I think many of us would at least think we know quite well. But I wonder if some of us, maybe like me and my ignorance, actually don't know as much as we think we do about the story. I knew about the fight for votes for women. I knew about some of the means that people did that by. The hunger strikes and the political pushback and the ongoing fight and the struggle for decades. And I knew that there was a bit of debate that went on about whether or not to use violent means to achieve their ends. But I don't think I'd really understood that there was very deep division uh, within the Pankhurst family themselves and more broadly than that. There was a big debate about whether to use violence or pacifism. There was a big debate about whether the world war that was breaking out at the time was justified or not and whether that should halt the fight for women's votes. And there was a big argument that Sylvia Pankhurst believed very strongly that women's votes were tied very closely up with uh, socialism, the fight for workers' rights, that all should have the right to vote, whereas some of the rest of the family thought that they should just focus on votes for women. I realised, as I watched the play unfold in front of me, that actually history and the stories uh, that we're exposed to are often a lot more complex. They have layers to them that we don't always see. And I think we often just absorb history. I hadn't bothered to take the time to look into all of those details, to understand the nuance 
and the complexity. And I think we can often just kind of accept or live by narratives that we absorb from things around us without taking a minute to stop and think. And I think that's especially the case for the church as a whole with what happens on the cross. Atonement is this word that we use, which is kind of the theological term for how we reconcile how humanity is reconciled with God. The acknowledgement that things are not as they should be, that people do wrong, that we are not one with God, and about how we wrestle on that process. And it's something that we don't often talk about very explicitly in church, but it seeps through everything. Even in the songs we were singing today, you know, we talk about how God saves us, how God rescues us, how God delivers us. What does that really mean? It's in the lyrics of so many of the songs we use. Uh, Roddy, could you just pop on the next slide for me? I should be able to get the technology to do the slides myself from here, but I think that might be a step too far. Thank you, next one. This is Sylvia, I'd recommend. Uh, these are just a few of the lyrics that we, uh, some of them we choose specifically not to sing here, some of them we do sing. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. These are lines that are almost like throwaways in songs. We could probably like hear the hymns playing in our heads for those of us who've grown up in church. It seeps through everything that we sing, the things we say, the prayers we pray. And often we don't stop to think, what does it really mean? Or how have we come to a place where these things are what we believe? And so throughout church history, people have tried to make sense of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And there have been many ideas and theories. Some of these have been largely lost. Some of them have carried through time. And that's what we're going to be grappling with over the next few weeks. Through most of uh, our lifetimes, the theory that has been the dominant one has been something that we call penal substitution. I'm not going to go into it loads today because that's a whole week that I don't want to steal. But essentially, in Western evangelical Christianity over the last few hundred years, we've clinged on, clung on to this idea that our sin is something that needs to be punished by God because of God's sense of justice. God can't let sin go unpunished. And so God sends Jesus to earth to die for us so that his death acts as a replacement for that punishment. And along with a couple of other ideas around sacrifice and ransom that are often sort of linked to the Old Testament, this is what we've clung to in our understanding of the cross. But what I will say is that there are an infinite number of ways to view what happened on the cross, to view the atonement. And ultimately, all of them in isolation are going to fail because nothing can make full sense of the mystery of God, of Jesus, of what happens on the cross. 
Theologian Brian Zand says this about the cross. To try and reduce the death of Jesus to a single meaning is an impoverished approach to the mystery of the cross. To try and reduce the death of Jesus to a single meaning is an impoverished approach to the mystery of the cross. He goes on to say this, the cross is both hideous and glorious, simultaneously ugly and beautiful. It's as hideous as human sin and as glorious as divine love. It is a collision of sin and grace, but it is not a contest of equals. In the end, love and beauty win. And I think as we travel through these weeks, those things are helpful to remember. The mystery of the cross can never be summed up in a single meaning. And the cross is hideous and glorious, but love wins. And so today I'm just going to chat a little bit about one of these ideas that has been part of the church's history about what the cross means. This is called the moral influence or moral example history. And before I get into it, it's worth saying that while I mentioned penal substitution, that's been our dominant atonement theory of late. It wasn't really commonly held until the Reformation in the 16th century, so it's actually a fairly new idea. This moral influence theory was really captured, and there's kind of hints of it further back in history, but really captured by a philosopher and theologian, Peter Abelard, in the 12th century, 400 years earlier. Abelard lived, let's just call it a varied life. Uh, He studied under the Notre Dame master at the time. He quickly got into trouble because he mastered the master, essentially. He was a great debater, a great thinker, could outthink everyone, but got himself in a few scrapes. He also had a tricky personal life. Uh, He had a secret lover, Eloise, also a philosopher, uh, who he runs off with, later marries, uh, gets caught up by a member of his family, uh, her family, who then castrates him, um, and he becomes a monk for a while after that experience. (laughs) An interesting and varied life. But... (laughs) and possibly unfortunate for him. He was also marred by ill health. He was a complex man. I guess it goes back to that thing of we're all multifaceted, we're all multidimensional. But what is true is he was a great philosopher, a great thinker, and a great theologian, held up and respected by many. And his idea of the atonement was of this moral influence or moral example. He was a contemporary of um, another theologian, Anselm of Canterbury, and he develops this this view in response to Anselm. Anselm believed that the critical issue at hand was God's honor. God had been dishonored by our sin, and that Jesus' death restored honor back to God. Abelard wasn't so convinced about this, so instead he focused on God's love. In particular, that God had demonstrated his love for humanity through the death of Jesus to influence us to live a better life, to influence us to turn to Christ. Instead of satisfying God's justice or God's honour, Jesus' death was designed to impress upon humankind a sense of God's love resulting in the softening of hearts and leading people to repentance. 
Abelard focused on changing humankind's perception of God as not offended, harsh, and judgmental, but as loving. A demonstration of how we can all turn to God. Abelard regards Christ's sacrifice on the cross not as payment, but as gift, the gift of salvation. And the sacrificial love of Jesus influences us to make gifts of ourselves, not only to God, but to a hurting world. The cross changes our behaviour, according to Abelard, because in the crucified Christ, we come to understand something of God's love for us. This theory also focuses on the, the kind of life and the influence that Jesus had as he lived through his whole life and whole ministry, rather than just focusing on what happens on the cross, which is something I think we often miss out. We kind of skip from nativity to death, and we miss this whole huge swathe of life and teaching and ministry and example that is there for us to see throughout. A theologian, Tony Jones, says this about the moral example theory. God is not coercive. God does not demand. Instead, God invites and beckons. And the cross is the ultimate invitation to each human being to live the life that God wants us to live. God is not coercive. God does not demand. I'm going to come back a bit to um, what I think that we can learn and take from this idea of moral influence, the idea of Jesus as the example of the way to live. But let me just tell you a few things where I think moral influence maybe hasn't quite got it right as a theory. As I said, all of these things are multi-layered. Nothing is going to be the perfect thing to hold up here. The first that people often say is, well, if Jesus is just a great moral influencer, how's he any different to any other martyr, any other great figure in history? Theologians tend to push back at this argument and say, it's because of who Jesus was. Jesus was the son of God, and by who he was himself, that in itself holds him in a sort of greater light than many others. A critique, though, that I think we do well to listen to and hear to often comes from um, feminist and womanist and black scholars who say where moral influence theory can really fall down is it kind of goes hard on this idea of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus and calling us to that self-sacrificial love. Where taken to it as extreme says we should be self-sacrificial to the point of death, to the point of suffering, they make the point that many of our theories of atonement have tended to be very male-centred, and at their worst, they justify violence against the powerless. Taken too literally, lots of these scholars say they encourage women, they encourage people who've suffered abuse to love and suffer to the point that Christ did. People trapped in abusive relationships often endure violence, hoping it will lead to some kind of salvific moment for an abuser, when in reality this rarely happens. 
In the name of selflessness, the needs of others get put before ourselves, even to the point of violence or hurt or punishment. And so I think we need to be very careful when we talk about this idea of moral influence, not to be so literal in our understanding of self-sacrifice as to believe there are not boundaries or assertions we should make for ourselves and for others. There's a fine line between self-sacrifice and enduring suffering and abuse to our own detriments. And that is not, I believe, living in the love and freedom that we're offered in Christ. It might be taking the, uh, the moral influence theory to its extreme to say that, but I think it's important that we seek to listen to those voices. Those who've often been oppressed and left powerless deserve to be placed at the centre of our theology, so we should give that some weight and some thought. The final thing I think about the moral influence theory is for me, I think it fails to adequately, adequately acknowledge the fullness of what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. It doesn't really address the presence of evil, the structures, the powers, the principalities that we see at play in the world. Uh, Dave spoke to us last week on his uh, Sunday grill of Is Satan Real? Um, which was a challenging, he did very well, that was um, a challenging morning, I think. But in that, he talked about how Satan in his mind, wasn't a sort of literal, physical being, but was about the things that we see that are evil and wrong in the world. The powers, the principalities, the injustice, that thread that runs through humanity where we know that all is not as it should be. And I think moral influence alone doesn't quite lead us to a place that addresses what is happening with the powers, the evils, the structures, and hopefully we'll address some of those in the future weeks as we go through. But for me, it has its limits there. So with all of those things in mind, there is something that struck me when I was learning about this idea of moral influence there was something that struck me and stayed with me. Love and not fear is the motivation of God in this understanding of the cross. Love and not coercion. Love and not anger. Love and not shame. Love is God's motivation, and in turn, this compels us to love. As Kessler read this morning, we love because he first loved us. And so often, as we read in those song lyrics at the beginning, our view of what happened on the cross is tied up with this idea of God's anger, God's wrath, God's need for punishment. And they kind of can scare us into this sense of needing to be obedient, of needing to follow, of needing to be good enough. I think often the way we viewed the cross has led us to a sense of shame rather than a sense of love. And I think what this idea does is to say the starting point is love. The starting point is God's love for all of humankind. And it's that which compels us. And I think a church like ours tries to say 
yes, we're led by love. We're led by God's love for us all. But I think there's still work for us to do. Um, There's a few times kind of throughout the last few years where we've had moments as a church community where we've been able to reflect together, to write prayers about ourselves, to kind of leave them somewhere. And sometimes a couple of us from the leadership team have gone away and prayed about the things that have been left, the things that have been said by us all as community together. And when people are asked to pray and to examine themselves, the theme that comes up the most commonly every time are, I feel shame. I feel ashamed because of X, Y, Z. I wish I was more like this. Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? Again and again, Every time we ask people to look inside themselves, the question that comes up for people, the deep-rooted feeling that sits inside probably every one of us is a sense of shame, a sense of worry that we're not enough. Um, Brené Brown, we used to talk about Brené Brown a lot, and um, probably just because she's not so like in everyone's minds anymore, but she's a brilliant uh, thinker and researcher. And she talks about shame is when guilt becomes all-consuming secrecy, fear of judgment. And I think that can often be what happens to us in churches, is that we, and in our worlds more widely, we end up being driven and motivated by fear and by shame and by secrecy and by judgment instead of by love just for a bit of a lighter story for a moment. Can anyone tell me who this is? Any guesses? Yes, where was that? Excellent, well done Francis. Yes, this is Mary Queen of Scots. Um, When I was younger, I lived in Scotland for a while and when I was about four or five, um, I went with my mum and with my sister to this like reenactment day in this big church where there was a Mary Queen of Scots herself was present and um, it was kind of like a living history thing we were learning about Mary Queen of Scots so we had this whole briefing beforehand oh, when the Queen enters you must uh, walk to the front of the church and you must not turn your back on the Queen because that would be an act of treason instead you must curtsy and you must walk backwards to your seat now I at the age of five went up did my curtsy promptly turned my back on the Queen and walked back to my seat in error I became so racked, my five-year-old self became so racked with guilt that I thought I was going to be beheaded for treason. (laughs) Because as a five-year-old, you don't realise that a living enactment of history is not, in fact, real life, and that the real-life people looking after Mary, Queen of Scots, are not going to come and behead you. And from my bedroom window, I could hear these church bells... And so every night when I went to sleep and every morning when I woke up, I could hear these bells chiming and I thought, that's it, they've got me, they're coming for me now. (laughs) And because I was so worried that what I had done was so wrong, instead of just getting it out there in the open, I built up the secret. I felt so ashamed. I felt so worried and I felt racked by fear. 
Now, when it turns out, eventually, I think the fear and the shame must have got too much, and it all blurted out to my mum, who thankfully was able to reassure me my chances of beheading were quite low. It's a silly example, but I think it shows us how we can easily become consumed by shame when actually if we were able to be open with one another and able to be honest about ourselves and about our truth and about our reality, we would find ourselves being responded to in love, not in anger. There was no wrath for me in that situation. There was no beheading or torment or torture. It turns out there was love. And so I think what we are called to do together as a community is to look for love together, to look for moments where we can break down shame, where we can look to one another and say, in all honesty and wholeheartedness, you are enough. God thinks you are worthy of love and not just bad. God doesn't look at you and see sin or anger or wrath. God looks at us and sees love. Love and not coercion. Love and not anger. Love and not shame. Nadia Boltzweather Weber says, God herself created us and gave us value and made us beautiful and did all of this in perfect love. Shame lies about us and our value and our beauty and our worthiness to be loved. So my challenge is how do we live by God's example on the cross? To live lives that are driven by and compelled to love. Compelled to love and not shame. Compelled to love and not fear. That is the example I believe that Jesus sets for us.